Well, as you're getting settled in, settled in, we're going to do just a little bit of review here. Uh, we last time we actually were reviewing as well. Uh, we sort of reviewed and clarified the thinking of an unbeliever. We've been spending a lot of time uh, doing that to understand uh, who we're going out to talk to. Uh, we need to have clarity about that. So we want to we want to get. Um, uh, get this really instilled in our minds. And uh, so let me review some of that with you and uh, ask you a couple questions along the way. Uh, first of all, we talked about the unbeliever who wants to use as a rational starting point for any conversation he has with you about metaphysical things, uh, things about God, salvation, beginning, end, and all that stuff in between, uh, he wants to use as a rational starting point almost any authority that he can find. So he doesn't want to submit himself to God and God's word, God's authority. He wants to use anything, science, philosophy, uh, social consensus, himself, uh, a com combination of all the above, uh, experience, whatever. He will submit himself to pretty much any authority as long as it keeps him away from that universal, transcendent, absolute standard of the authority of God in his holy word. So he wants to stay away from that because why? He doesn't want accountability, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want any accountability to anybody but himself. Secondly, when we talk about an unbeliever, and again, this is just all review from last time to pick up where we left off, particularly the Western, modern, modernistic variety of unbelief, we find that the unbeliever wants to represent himself to you as a neutral, uh, objective seeker of the truth. Okay, he, he doesn't want to reveal to you that he harbors an anti-God bias. He wants to tell you, uh, I'm, I'm just a, a truth seeker like you are. Um, so he feigns this accountability uh, to objectivity. He tries to show some modicum of humility, but in reality, he considers himself to be accountable to no one but himself. So no accountability to God, only accountability to the self. It's the very same lie, actually, that Adam and Eve believed in the garden, right? The serpent said to Adam and Eve, you or uh, to Eve, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that what does that do to Eve or what does that do to Adam and Eve? It, it, in their minds, it puts them up on the same level as God. Hey, I can be the arbiter of my own reality just like God is. Now I know good and evil, so I can make judgments. That is the original form of the same lie people are believing today. It's nothing new. So it goes all the way back to the garden. So accountability to no one but the self. So here's a, a question for you, and just, just by way of review. If the unbeliever wants to reject being accountable to God, he wants to be accountable only to the self, or whatever authority he will give himself to, like science or whatnot, why does he bother pretending to be neutral? Why, um, why put on that ruse? Why, uh, why bother this pretended neutrality in a conversation with you about these things? What do you think? Is this too difficult of a question after you've lost an hour of sleep last night and didn't get a nap this afternoon? What was the question? I'm not going to repeat it for you, so. Yeah, Gary. Well, it's really pretty simple. He knows he's wrong, and he knows what he's doing is wrong. He 
doesn't want to admit to that. <laughs> Spoken like a high school teacher, I think. <laughs> yeah, so so you could you call those uh, high school students bluff. You've seen too many of these come into your your classroom and and uh, play dumb with you or. Well, I didn't see it on the, you never said anything about a quiz, you know, that kind of thing. That's the same thing that the unbeliever's doing, just in a more sophisticated sense, right? So again, so here's the question, Chuck. Why does the unbeliever bother with a pretended neutrality? Why does he act as if he's a, a neutral seeker of the truth? Why not just come out right out and say, you know what? I love my sin. I like sinning. I um, know I'm accountable to God, but I really, I don't care. I'm pretty flippant about that. Why doesn't he just tell you that? Why does he pretend to be neutral? Leanna. Um, he wants to be on the same level. If you're on the same level, then your argument has no justification. Okay, so it's to almost, in a sense, uh, diffuse you calling him to account. I'm, I'm, I'm just neutral. I have no position in this. Right? So they're trying to keep you from holding them accountable in your words. That's a very insightful uh, comment. I saw a couple more hands. Is that a hand or is that a scratch of the eyebrow? It, it can be a hand. <laughs> you want me to go to someone who's firmer in their, their conviction? I was going to say it's, it's cognitive dissonance, right? We, it, we naturally uh, fight with ourselves on things that we know that are, are true, uh, mostly out of pride. Right, right, that's true. Every Dorito I eat, I say this is healthy, this is vegetable. <laughs> if, if you eat only three... But I know it's not. Yes, Brett, and then I think someone else. Oh, Scott, yeah. Yeah, some people are willing to say that, you know, but it's just, if, if, if you say that, then you have to deal with that issue. You know, you have to deal with the actual issue. But if you say you're neutral then you can spend all kinds of, you can talk to the world ends about why, you know, why they're wrong. And then they'll like present like one argument, you answer that argument, and then they, oh, they just present another argument. Okay, know? all right, good. So it's, it, we, we like, there's, a, there's something about the unbelieving mind and heart that prefers to live behind a smoke screen. Yeah. Yeah, they just want to, they just want to fill the air with this misty, Thing, and they don't want you to look too closely. Otherwise, they'll have to face up to what? Their sin, their ugliness. Yeah. Scott? Uh, I was thinking like the law is written on their hearts, and so they know it's wrong and right. Right. Uh huh. And so. Okay, so, so why do they pretend to be neutral? If they know that that's written and they know what's written on their hearts, why do they pretend to be neutral, objective seekers of truth. That goes back to what we were saying, because it, shows, it okay. shows, the, the light shows on their darkness. Okay, okay, because yeah. they love their sin, they don't want it to be exposed. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, one more, Chuck. No, no, two more. Maybe uh, by their righteousness, they suppress the truth. Okay, by their righteousness, they're suppressing the truth. Good, which, which creates all kind of, well, Wayne used a big fancy word, cognitive dissonance. It's, uh, it, it creates, uh, it makes a mush of their brain and their thinking, right? That's really what Wayne means. Being interpreted is. Um, Brad? I mean, I think we've all done this from time to time. You tell yourself a lie, basically. You convince yourself it's a good idea. and Kind of what Wayne said. 
um, you convince yourself of a lie, basically. We have You're easy to live with that. Yeah. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, I don't need to work out. I'm good. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, I do need to work out. I'm telling myself a lie, trying to say, hey, I don't look that bad. I still fit in these pants. That kind of thing, right? Yeah, this is on record, I just realized. Uh, one more. Is it Brett? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing along those lines. They've suppressed the truth, and they've just convinced themselves that they are neutral. And so some of them just think that they are, and they go along with, like, Brett said, going around in circles with all these other things, when at the heart they are opposed, but they've kind of just bought in that they actually are neutral. Okay, so they've been telling themselves this lie for so long, yeah. they've, they're now self-deceived. So they've gone into really tragic territory, haven't they? Yeah, good. So even though the unbeliever doesn't want to be accountable to anybody but himself, it's kind of like you know trying to bring together all the, that you're saying here. He can't escape the fact that he is accountable and he knows it. You know, he cannot escape that fact. His conscience will not allow him to live comfortably in this world of make-believe. His conscience convicts him because he knows he has to reckon with God one day, right? So he, there, is, there is no escaping himself. There's no escaping the law of God written on his heart. There is no escaping the conscience that he has that alternately excuses or accuses him no matter what he says, no matter how he presents himself, on the inside he's being torn apart. He can never escape his creatureliness, no matter what he says and pretends in front of you. The evidence of this, that he knows in his heart that he's accountable to God, the evidence is in this very attempt to justify his belief system by telling you he's neutral, by telling you it's not so clear. Um, I don't see it. By telling you all that, he's trying to justify his belief system. And it's this attempt to present himself as this neutral, unbiased, objective truth seeker. He is lying to himself and he's lying to you that he is so fair-minded, so open-minded, so willing to, to be reasonable if only the evidence was there. He's just trying to fool his own accusing conscience. And very subtly, maybe not so subtly, but subtly, his claim to be neutral is really a form of blaming God for not being clear enough to make himself plain to his own reason. That's really what's going on. So as subtle as he is, he is out, actually, this is an outright denial of what God said, clearly, in Romans 1.19, right? What can be known about God is what? Hidden? Confusing? Hard to understand? No. Plain to them, Right? It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. Who are you going to believe? The unbeliever in front of you who has a moral pre-commitment to his own sin and worldview? Or are you going to believe the objective truth of God's word? Right? So God's invisible attributes, Romans 1.20, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been what? Clearly perceived. Not um, confused, not um, hidden and muddled, but they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that what? They're without what? Excuse. Without excuse. So the unbeliever wants to control the conversation by choosing the authoritative starting point, which is any authority other than God, any authority other than God's word. The unbeliever wants to present himself as a rationally neutral creature, an object, uh, objective truth seeker, just like you. He wants to draw you into it as well. I'm just like you, truth seeker. You're a truth seeker, I'm a truth seeker. 
But the unbeliever is not neutral at all. And we shouldn't be, right? Dr. Bonson, the unbeliever is not neutral, and you had better not be. Thirdly, when we talk with the unbeliever, we cannot allow the unbeliever to determine the boundaries of our shared common ground for this conversation. That is, we can't allow him to frame the argument, to set the rules of conversation, to talk about the playing field, where the boundaries are and the end zones are for this conversation. Um, he's going to act as if we are required to join him in his imaginary universe. And that's a universe, by the way, where there is no God. It's a universe where arbitrariness is acceptable on his part, where, where he's not required to justify his, his philosophical biases, um, all of that. In other words, the kind of universe that he's comfortable with, where he does not have to give an account. I don't know if you notice this, but in any movies you watch, you notice how there's no acknowledgement of God and accountability to God in those movies. This is, they just do whatever they want. They're just defining their own reality. You watch enough of that stuff, and then the unbelieving conversation starts to make sense to you. So shut that stuff off. Don't watch that stuff and deal with God and his word. And you'll see clearly in dealing with the unbeliever. We cannot join him in that alternative reality, that alternative universe that he's spun out of, of, of thin air. We can't join him on atheistic common ground because to do so is to not only affirm his idolatry, it's to participate in his idolatry. We cannot do that. We have a moral pre-commitment to obey the Lordship of Jesus Christ for First Peter 3.15, particularly in our conversations with unbelievers. So we need to speak with that unbeliever on the true common ground that we do share with an unbeliever, right? What is it? The common ground is God's ground. It's God's world. Together, we inhabit, or if you prefer the term coexist, we do a coexist together uh, as fellow creatures and live in the common ground of God's created world. So they're a creature, we're a creature, we're breathing God's air, we're walking on God's earth, we're held down by God's gravity, we are subject to the laws of physics and mathematics and also laws of logic and reason and laws of morality and laws of beauty and all the things that God had put inside of us. We are fellow creatures with that unbeliever. So we share that same ground. Now, all that was review. And hopefully, uh, some of that rings familiar to you. And if not, if you feel um, totally lost at this point, fret not. Uh, because first, we're going we're gonna to come back to some of these presuppositional elements later on. Uh, not, not tonight, but uh, in weeks to come. Because I do have a lot I want to unpack and reinforce. Um, but I have introduced you to the main concept. So... Uh, this will come back to you as pretty familiar as we go forward. Secondly, we're going to get into some more familiar territory, and I'm going to kind of expand on that a little bit later, but we'll start with that familiar territory tonight, which is some of the things that you've read for yourself in Scripture. I wanted to begin with that review, though, because um, some of the things we discussed last time lead us into the topic for tonight. I'd actually intended on getting into this last time, but surprise, surprise, I ran out of time. So here we are. We're, um, we're going back into it. I mentioned last time that there is an eternal gulf that exists between the believer and the unbeliever. And it's as profound as the difference that exists between darkness and light, between death and life. Paul said in Romans 8, 7, that the mind uh, that is set on the flesh, that is talking about an unbeliever, it's 
not just, it's certainly not neutral. It's certainly not indifferent. It is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That is to say, it is unable to. I want to illustrate that further just by looking at a text. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Just a short couple of verses there, but I want to, I want to drive this home just a little bit. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, just to talk about the, the fundamental hostility between the believing and the unbelieving worldview. This is in a context where Paul is telling Christians not to partner together with unbelievers in any kind of a spiritual enterprise. So often, you know, youth leaders will use this and say, hey, you know, don't be dating an unbeliever. And that's certainly true. Uh, Don't marry an unbeliever. Certainly true. But this is actually broader than that, that we don't get involved in any spiritual enterprise with unbelievers, which really demolishes the whole ecumenical, hey, let's, let's hold hands, sing we are the world, and go save everybody for your version of whatever God is. That's not what we are about. This, this, is, uh, this is why. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. And then it goes on from there. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he's really hammering that home, isn't he? So there is this fundamental hostility that exists between the believing and the unbelieving worldview. They are poles apart. And not only that, but they're diametrically opposed. Um... There is no concord between righteousness and lawlessness, uh, between light and darkness. There is absolutely no agreement whatsoever between Christ and Belial, uh, the temple of God and idols. God will never, ever, 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 ever tolerate rivals to his glory. Uh, He'll never coexist uh, with idols. There's no truce between God and that which God opposes. And that's not just from God's end. That's also from the idolater's end as well, okay? So let me ask you a couple questions about that. Are unbelievers accountable to God for what's written in the Bible, even if they've never read it? You sure? Why is that fair? What about the, okay, there's a pygmy living in Africa. He's grown up in a cave, was born in a cave. Lives in a cave all his life. Food's brought in to him by his mom. He's, he doesn't know anything. He's living there. Is that fair for God to hold him accountable? To things written in the Bible he's never seen? Yes, sir. What were you going to say? Were you going to elaborate on that comment? The answer is yes. It's fair. Why is it fair? Or to the person that is, I, I just had this discussion with, with my grandmother this afternoon. Oh, how about that? It's, uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't say except the people that have a hard time reading the Bible, the people who have a hard time understanding the Bible, the people who are ashamed to read the Bible out loud. It doesn't say any of that. It says everybody. Everyone. Okay. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages for that sin is death. They're going to be accountable to God for everything that's written in the Bible, right? Even if they haven't read it. 
Now, God is going to hold them accountable on his, and what he sees in their heart. It says in Romans 2, 14, 15, that their conscience will bear witness against them, right? They have a law of God written on their heart. And I know that, you know, yeah, he's not going to say, okay, what does, you know, Romans chapter 7 say? You know, he's not gonna, it's not that kind of a thing, but it's more, what do they know? And what Romans 2, 14, 15 says is they have a law of God written on their hearts. They have a sense of right and wrong and morality, what's, what's good and bad and right and wrong and true and false. And their conscience is going to stand with God as a prosecutor and uh, bring him before the bench there. So, yes, they're going to be held accountable. Fundamentally, yes, they are accountable. And yes, uh, Wes, yeah, good point. Fair. What's fair? Fair is getting what your deeds deserve. What do your deeds deserve according to Romans 1 through 3? Death. Our deeds deserve death. Because we all know, God says, we all know, he should know because he's God, he's omniscient. He said, we all know, and we all know, and then we turn away from what we know. We don't do according to what he has revealed. That's sin. We're going to be held accountable for it. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 96. I love this series of Psalms here in the mid-90s, but uh, this one here in Psalm 96 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, get this, not just Israel, but all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among, not just Israel, the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. We're the families of the peoples. That's everybody on earth, right? Ascribe, even the pygmy in the cave, fed by his mother. Ascribe to the Lord, O pygmy in the cave. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And here it is. He will judge the peoples with equity, with fairness. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. And then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That should be a sobering thought, Right? The nations, verse 10, and it's also there in verse uh, 3. The nations, that's the goyim, that's us, that's Gentiles. Whatever false gods the nations worship, whatever idols that they have uh, crafted in their own hearts, whatever images that they have crafted externally, bowed down to, Yahweh is going to hold them all accountable for to fear him above all those other things, to demolish their idols and their, their, their icons and all that stuff, and to worship him instead in the splendor of holiness, they will all be held accountable. That's what this is saying. So since God intends to call all people 
to accountability. Since God intends to call all people to answer him on the day of judgment, let me ask you, what kinds of attitudes should that produce in us as we think about them? Sorrow. Good. Sorrow. What else? Humility. Humility. Why humility? Because we were there. Good. Because we were there. That's right. Like, um, any of you ever almost died and not died? Has it ever happened to anybody? It's happened to me. Okay, so anybody else almost died and didn't die? Okay, so a few of you have had that experience. You, you feel like a, a sense of, whoa. It, it very, you're sobered. You're, you're wide awake all of a sudden. And you say to yourself, I narrowly escaped death. I am so thankful, but I'm also humbled because I could have died just like that, but I was spared. That's, I think, the kind of humility that is produced in us when we recognize that God chose us. He set his love on us. He set his affection on us. But then as we think about the unbeliever, it should produce sorrow. What else? You said humility. What else? Yes. Yes. Guilt? Or in what sense? Well, I think um, Harry was talking about it today. I am going through that right now. Just, you know, what about all the people I love who are unbelievers? And I love them. And, you know, that guilt. So why me and not them? Oh, okay. Like survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Like, um, boy, I narrowly dodged the bullet, but that guy got it kind of thing. yeah, I think, uh, I, think I, I understand that. There's also, I, was, I thought you maybe you were going in the direction of feeling guilty because you haven't actually shared the gospel with people. I, I, I feel that sometimes. Convicted, you know, like, why have I not been more persistent in this? I guess so. Yeah, so that too. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, Brad? Compassion. Compassion, yeah. That's what I'm, that, the, the, so what he said right there, and we can take all these answers and kind of put them into that category of the sorrow, uh, a guilt that we haven't shared the gospel, a humility. That's, if you take away anything, in fact, you can get up and leave right now. If you just get the compassion, <laughs> you don't have to hear anything else. But I just, I just want you to have the sense of compassion. And tonight is really all about trying to develop in us a sense of compassion for the lost, for people who don't know Christ. God is going to do what he's going to do, right? He is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over every soul. Um, that's his job, to save. But it's their job to repent and believe. And we are going to call them to that, okay? So we do that indiscriminately. We sow seed not just to, you know, on elect people, because <laughs> we don't know who they are. So we just sow seed and scatter it abroad everywhere, because we want to be faithful and we want to love lost people, okay? Okay. Um, so last time, or yeah, last time I mentioned three reasons, three reasons that we should engage in gospel-centered evangelistic conversations with unbelievers in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, humble boldness. And I, I just briefly mentioned them, said, made a few comments, but I'd actually like to unpack those tonight a little bit more, um, do some reading of scripture together. And I actually, I'd like to add a fourth reason, a fourth reason, if we have time for it, we'll see what the Lord allows. But first, we have to, I'm going to give you the three reasons again. First of all, we have to approach the unbeliever in an attitude of meekness and compassion. 
because it's just what um, Karen said, we remember our former condition. We remember our former condition. So let's get some readers for this, um, if we could. I'm going to divvy up the passages here, but <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that's one passage. So someone look that up. And t- you got that, Gary? Um, someone else take Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. You got that, Rob? Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Someone? Someone? Yes? Lori? And one more is 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5. Jesse. All right. So let's remember our former condition. And we'll start with, I think it's Gary, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Go ahead and read that out loud. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so taking some concepts out of that, how does that help you? And I'm talking not just in general terms, but in concrete terms. How does that help you to have compassion for unbelievers and their condition? One thing, I have nothing to boast in. It's very obvious I'm no different than them, and it's only by God's grace. So if there's going to be any boasting, we're like Paul. It's in the cross of Christ. Okay, so boast in the cross alone of your own salvation. So, But as you think about that unbeliever, and you see this condition described, which we were once in, mm-hmm. how does this help you when you look at this condition? How does it provoke a sense of compassion over them? Yeah, Lee. Well, one of the things that it provokes in me is this thought that as surely as God can work in my life, they can work in their life. There's a, it gives me a hope for them that I might not otherwise have. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So it gives you a hope for them. You see, I mean, this is a pretty desperate condition. The, the, the Bible uses the word dead. And it really means dead, spiritually dead. There's no life in them. But we believe in a God who can raise the dead. And he's done that in us. He's, call, he's called us to uh, you know, a new and living hope. And he's, made, he's put within us a new nature. So that's, that's great. It gives us a hope in our conversations with them that God can do the same thing with them if he so chooses. Yeah. Especially if we read the verses after that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But let's not get there yet. We want to we wallow in this muck for a little bit, okay? Um, yeah, Wes. I think one of the points in the verse three is that's important is that we will we understand a contrast between um, carrying out the desires of our body as it's indicated and not doing that where the person we're speaking to may not have that understanding or does not have that understanding and there's no I mean, the way that they're going to see it is through us Okay. All right. That's good. So I'd imagine you come across a slice of humanity pretty regularly where you see them living in a way that is absolutely destroying themselves. And it just, it just breaks your heart to see that, that cross-section of society. You see it probably more intently than any, anybody in this room. That's hard to see. And they don't, it's, it's almost like they don't know any better. And it, even, if they, even if they escape it for just a little bit and say, well, that was really bad, they go right back to it. They're saying, what is going on? Why are they doing that? Oh, because they're dead. In their trespasses and sins. Yeah, Brett. In 212, it says, without hope or without God in the world. We're going to get to that one. Don't go there yet. <laughs> Save that comment. Yeah, Christy. Um, I just, one thing that I don't know if it's really in here or not, but I just, it occurred to me reading it, is 
um, the the bonded, like the slavery that they're in. Yeah. I mean, they're just like they're going this way, and it's like they're on a treadmill, and they're yeah. They can't get off of it, you know, and <laughs> they're trapped. Right, like rats in a cage. Yeah, just spinning on that wheel, like the hamster wheel, you know. That's a torture device for little hamsters. <laughs> this, this, um, this sense that unbelievers are dead, spiritually dead, not alive, was a key point of discovery for Martin Luther to learn that he didn't just need spiritual healing, he didn't need just improvement to be lifted up from his low condition, but he actually, he needed resurrection. Unbelievers are dead. They're, they have a zombie-like existence. And, and uh, like you said, it's animated by a spirit of evil. Um, a spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That spirit is what keeps them enslaved to the passions of the flesh. Like Wes is saying, piling sin upon sin upon sin, suffering consequence upon consequence, and hardening them in this condition of being children of wrath. All the while, everything they're doing is earning more and more wrath of God on their condition. And we were once among them until God showed us mercy. But God, right? Verse, verse 4. But God. He caused us to be made alive by life-giving power, by his mercy. Through his grace, he caused us to be born again. So it's not our doing but his, like Gary's saying. It's good to remember that when we sit down and talk face-to-face -face with an unbeliever that they're not responding because dead people don't hear well. They don't hear at all. So it really is going to be God working in them just as God worked in us to open deaf ears, to give sight to blind eyes, to cause a heart that is stone cold to be living flesh. Okay? Let's go to the next one. And here's where your comment can come out, Brett. But first we need to read the verses, Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. Who was that? Yeah, Rob. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay. Thank you. So this obviously related to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. But it's saying something just slightly different, isn't it? It's got a different look. And I, that's what I want to ask. What about that condition? Rob just read there, Ephesians 2, 11, 12. What helps you have compassion on the unbeliever because of that? Yeah, Bruce. I guess to me, the, the concept of hope is, is pretty big to me, okay? And so the thought of being without hope. Well, that is, um, that is a, um, a place of absolute despair, isn't it? To be without hope. Hope is what keeps people alive. I, 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 my wife and I love those survivor stories, you know, where people, some plane wreck or some ship thing or whatever, and people survive because they have this glimmer of hope that they can make it against impossible odds. Take away that hope, though. Their soul dies. They, don't, they just give up fighting anymore. It's, it's a very powerful thing, hope. Uh, Brett, you were going to say. Yeah, just, you know, in Romans 8, 28, it says that... Uh, um, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You know, and you look at the guys on the job or wherever, and for them, that is not the case. For mm. them, they are a complete pawn in the sea of God's 
sovereignty. And, and if they never come to Christ, everything that they suffer, everything that happens to them, happens for no reason. No good reason for them. Mm. Nothing to do for them except for to damn them further. Mm. It's just amazing. The, the abyss, you're like, you're looking at this guy talking to you or whatever, and it's just an abyss. Yeah. You know? It's heartbreaking. It is. Thank you. Any other comments to add to that? Yeah, Chuck? Well, I'm just thinking sure. of the, what was it, the Lazarus, you know, on one side of the, mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. gulf, you know? And how the I'm, rich man. Yeah, the rich man, you know. And, oh, yes, yeah. So, I mean, just that tremendous gulf that you mentioned, you know, is there, and it, it's unbridgeable except by the cross. Yeah. Yeah, there's no coming back from that, right? Maggie? Um, I think the command here to remember um, is interesting because a lot of times in the Old Testament, we're called to remember so that their pride didn't get too big, that we did this, right. we, we knocked down Jericho, we did this, yeah. we did this, you know, our, we're called to remember where we once were so that our pride doesn't get in the way of mm -hmm. thinking, well, I came with faith, yeah. and so, and you maybe make won't be as good, good enough to come, so. And that is such a real danger, isn't it? That our pride does well up within us and say, why don't they get it? I got it. Oh, <laughs> what am I saying? What did I just, did that just come out of my mouth? It's true though. We do have to remember because we, what, forget. You know, like, like God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you're some great, wonderful thing. You're the least of all the nations, not even a people. I chose you because you're nothing. And because of your nothingness, I can then derive all the glory. And when I think about uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, consider your condition, your calling, brethren, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. And every time I read that, I'm like, yep, rightly identified. <laughs> Ron, you were going to say something? Yes, I think sometimes uh, <clears throat> I've thought about this too. It's the same thing. It's like I think what it does <coughs> if you talk to someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins as we were and God opens their eyes and resurrects them that what it does to us is it does something to us with our, with our faith and our belief in God that God can raise the dead. Yeah, that's right. It does. It instills us a great confidence in the power of our God. That's right. So, was there, Karen, were you going to say something? Well, I guess the part that struck me was the you were at that time separated from Christ, mm -hmm. alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. Gentiles, the Gentiles had no hope because Israel was where salvation came from. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of a, a a warning to us not to not to get the big head. <laughs> so not, yeah, good. We have done nothing. We have done nothing. Um, we were alienated from from anything here. We were separated from Christ, and um, the the fact that that. It's just so unbelievable that God has chosen us. It's nothing of us, mm. and and so to take that into um, our mindset is it, when, 
who was talking about remembering. <laughs> um, yeah, it was I think it's Maggie. really important yeah. that um, the Gentiles knew of Israel's God, but they were on the outside. That's right. I, I, looking behind you, Wayne, who travels all over the world. He's got a passport at, uh, ostensibly, should keep him out of trouble. But in every country he goes to, that's not his land. He doesn't have the rights in that country. It's only because of that little passport he holds that keeps him protected. But you take away that passport and you put him in some bad territory, bad things are going to happen. He doesn't belong there. He has no rights. I'm not meaning to worry you, Lauren. Sorry about that. Um, he's fine. He's totally fine. He, doesn't, he never walks in those places, he told me. But, um, but seriously, um, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's that, kind of a, that kind of realization settles on you when you travel into a foreign country with it's not your own country. Uh, those aren't your people. Those aren't your laws. Those aren't your rights and privileges. You're a guest there, and you better behave yourself. And in the same way, the Gentiles, they were, not just, they were not just foreigners, but they were despised foreigners in Israel. They were separated, alienated, estranged. Those are such mournful, sorrowful words, aren't they? No hope. Cut off from God. Honestly, kind of back to Brett's point, you, you, you wonder what keeps them alive. What keeps them going every single day? And when you see what people think they're living for, what they what they pursue to satisfy themselves, or maybe it's just what they pursue to forget how sad they are. It's a truly pathetic and pitiable condition of life, isn't it? Turn a page and who's got to Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 19. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. Okay, thank you. So we've, we've talked about how spirit, uh, unbelievers are spiritual zombies. They're like the walking dead. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, they're cut off from God and all hope, verses 11 to 12. But how do these verses here, Ephesians 4, 17 and 19, how do these verses help you look at this sad state of unbelief from a, a different angle yet again and foster compassion for the unbeliever? What do you see there? They're darkened in their understanding. Darkened, understand. darkened in their understanding. So everything's confusion for them, mm -hmm. right? Good. So that's a... That saddens you that they're not able to make their way. They're, it's just darkness for them. It's like scales over their eyes. Yeah, yeah. I like the word futility in their minds because yeah. no matter what they try, it's not going to work. It's okay, that, that's the word that stood out to me too. That word futility. Futility of their minds, which means a futility in their thinking. Like, like their mind runs a certain track, but it can never finish it can never get to the end of it. It doesn't even truly know the start of it either, as we're talking about in this uh, apologetics portion. They don't, they don't know the reason for things. They don't know the origin of things. They don't know the end of things. They can't make sense of anything in the middle. So any, anything that they plan, building on no foundation whatsoever, is doomed to futility from the start. Somebody else? Perhaps isn't 
Isn't it true, though, that they don't even know they have hardness of heart? They don't know that they're callous? So we see it, we, we think right. about it, we, but they have no clue. They, they don't understand that. But we talked about before that change, that, that um, regeneration where we are, were our old selves, but we can now see what our old selves were. They don't even see that. Yeah, they don't. You're right, they don't see it. That's how I was going to say the compassion part, like you said, because you can look at that passage and say, yeah, well, that, they're in really a bad state. They're in really a bad state. But to look and say, hey, I was there, you know, it's like, And I agree with exactly what Jesse said. That changes what your compassion is about. It's, I'm trying to think of some examples of how you, you, can't, you can't even tell them what they're missing because they're, they're completely satisfied in their own little... They don't think their heart's hardened. Paul didn't think his heart was hardened mm-hmm. when he, he thought he was doing God's work. And yet Christ did say to him, it is hard for you to prick against the goads, didn't he? Yeah. Right? So there was some sense that Paul, did, Christ knew that Paul was feeling that sense of futility in his actions. A sense of frustration that he can't stamp out this heretical thing called the way. Drives him nuts. So yeah, he chases it, chases it, and yet Christianity, the more he persecutes it, the more he jails it, the more it keeps on growing. Futility. Um, but let, me, let me skip you two guys and move on to the next one, okay? So I, I'm sorry to do that, but I'm just looking at the clock. Um, as, as we said, futility of mind, they're, they're always, um, always th- this is complete dissatisfaction, ultimate dissatisfaction. Well, Wes, what you're saying is that they feel satisfied in the moment, but ultimately it doesn't satisfy. And give them five years, give them 10 years, give them 15 years. Eventually, they come to the end of it and they say, there is nothing here but a mirage. This is just more sand, more desert. There's actually nothing here. And then they're left with the baggage and the consequences of everything they've ruined along the way. So they they come dissatisfied, frustration, always pursuing, never overtaking, always striving, never achieving, always running, but never crossing the finish line. It's an exhausting and unrelenting futility. My, you know, you can almost look at the people who seem satisfied, self-satisfied in that condition, and you almost are even more concerned for them because they're going to maybe go go all the way through their life feeling like they got all the toys and all the success and everything else, and they're going to stand before God and find then that all that was futility, oh, which, which is worse. That's a crushing defeat there. So futility of mine. Thank you're getting the point. Want to discuss one more text though. We've been hearing from Paul. Let's hear from Peter. Who's got the Peter text? First Peter four. Yeah, Jesse. One through five. Right? One through five. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same <coughs> way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live from the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ends with a sobering note, doesn't it? So... As you read that section there, you, you see the, the indulgence in sin and sensuality in verse 3, and then you see in verse 4 that they're surprised when you don't join them in that same flood. I love the, the word picture there, the flood 
of debauchery. They malign you for that. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something in this question that's a little bit different. So let me see if it works. It may not work. But um, as you hear this and as you can imagine, uh, you can imagine the scene, right? You can imagine the party or whatever. And um, you can also imagine the unbeliever's surprise, verse 4, at your lack of participation in those sins with them. Um, what kind of picture comes to mind, comes to your mind, about the unbelieving condition. That is to say, if you were trying to illustrate this to somebody, perhaps you're teaching somebody else who doesn't, who's not kind of familiar with this text, how would you help them with maybe like an analogy or a word picture or a little story? How does this look to you? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Max, you look like you're eager to jump right into the fight. No, you're not. You're back from North Dakota. Your brain's still dead. Frozen, thawing out. Okay. Yeah, Judy. I know that people don't want to be with you if you don't join in, you know, with what they're doing. For, for a while, a few years, I was a vegan and I was a vegetarian. I didn't get invited out for dinner after church very often. I didn't have to say anything. It's just the difference in what I ordered and what they had. And right. I didn't enjoy their meal. That's because Christians are meat eaters, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that's it. That's an interesting point you're bringing up because it's it's a sense in which your non-participation. What does that What does that do to them? Makes them feel what? Guilty, Guilty right? Yeah. They know I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. I should be at home going to bed early like he is, right? As mom used to say, right, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> get home, kids. Too. What's that? They get offended, too. They get offended. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Sherry. I remember a Thanksgiving after we got saved and we went to the folks and my brother-in-law um, poured me a glass of wine. And I said, oh, I don't want that. And he goes, what? And everybody in our family were very serious drinkers. And, I mean, wine is not even a drink. It's like, so, it's like soda to them, right? <laughs> so I'm like, he goes, this is really good. I paid so much for this bottle. And uh, I said, well, I don't want it. And I could already feel nervous just thinking of this confrontation with him. Uh, he was always a pretty um, sarcastic guy anyway. Mm. And um, he's like, yeah, now you're, you're like holy, aren't you? Wow, and that all started coming out just like, just, <laughs> you're not even asking any questions, and it's just starting to come out. No, no, he was already mad because he heard we'd gotten saved, and we had changed quite a bit. How dare you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, so he went on and on with it, and I felt like, gosh, what am I doing this for? This isn't helping me get share the gospel with him. He's just getting mad. And... Um, Finally, he just wore me down. We were in the kitchen alone together, and I finally said, okay. And, you know, I drank my glass of wine. And he goes, I knew it. I knew there was no difference between you and me. Wow. Oh, wow. That was, it was that guy. I never had another chance. Never had another chance. I was now a hypocrite. Wow. 
Wow. And he doesn't see how he baited you and pressured you. Uh, yeah. No, he didn't see that, right? He's blinded in his understanding. <laughs> He's not self-reflective on his own sin and hypocrisy, is he? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Wow. But that's a very powerful illustration. Thank you for sharing that. That's very important. So stand your ground, folks. Stand your ground. That's good. That's good. Um, I always imagine when I think about this passage, I always imagine like I, I was living in uh, Los Angeles area for quite some time. And I've actually seen this in other big cities, Denver as well. Um, but I always imagine like this walking by, you see this group of like homeless vagrants and they're living in the filth and the, the, the squalor of some dirty, dimly lit alley um, in the city. They're using, you know, there's like used hypodermic needles all over the ground and soiled clothing, the stench is unbearable and they're, they're just filthy mess and you don't want to get in there at all. They're digging through a dumpster and they're pulling out whatever looks marginally edible. It's got stuff growing on it and it's just feeding on the muck and the filth that they find in there. And then they turn, they see you passing by and they turn and offer some to you. And this is what, the, this is what's pictured here. And we turn away because we see that for the filth that it is. And we say, I, I can't, no way do I want to indulge in that. No way do I want to be part of that. So you turn away and they respond with not just shock, but they mock you. They laugh at you. They got a whole group of them there and you kind of feel like the, oh, I want to be cool and accepted by these homeless guys, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but they do, they mock you, they laugh at you. They begin to scoff and revile you. That's the picture that helps me think about this, whatever picture you have in your mind, but it helps me to think about this and it grieves my heart. Whenever I read verses like this, whenever I remember my former condition apart from Christ, because I was once one of those guys digging through dumpsters. Now I'm no longer that. Wayne. Yeah, I, I think it's also important to, to understand that in, in the world today, right? And I, I think, I, I think the picture that you you paint is a spiritually true one, right? But to our our mortal eyes, the way that that appears is, you know, you're finishing up a dinner with a bunch of VPs, right? And mm. they're going out to the bar, and it's just an expectation that is a lowly director, right, you're of course going to join them, and it's not even this question. No. I mean you're yeah. going back to the hotel. You know, you, you wouldn't turn up your nose at joining us at the bar, right? Yeah. You know, and they're in way expensive suits that I would never spend that kind of stupid money on, and, you know, they've just gone through the $300 bottle of wine or whatever, and, you know, if you, if you walk out of there, it's you know, it's going to be the social thing. And that's, that's the way it actually happens. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. They're, the pressure is much, um, you know, is, is much different than seeing homeless guys in an alley. That's true. Um, yeah, Lee. I was just going to say that there's another side to it before we get to the mocking. And that's sort of like an Ernest Hemingway. He's, he's done everything and he's jaded. There's just nothing else that satisfies there, is, there isn't any of that content that he can grab hold of anymore that begins to even try to fill up that emptiness in him, and he finally kills himself. Mm. And uh, I see that a lot of people, they've, they've done everything they can to climb this ladder, 
stomping on everybody to get to the top, and they find out when they get there, they climb the wrong wall. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the futility yeah, part of it. Right. Yeah. I, when I think about the homeless guys, I think about the fact that they think everything they're eating tastes really good. Yeah. If you try to offer them, like, God's perfect eternal truth, here's a steak, and they just spit it out. They can't handle it. They don't like it. I mean, gnaw on it for a little bit, but then they're just going to throw it away. They'd rather go back in the dumpster. It's, it's a pathetic picture. And this is, this, we were once among these people. We were once among them. We're just like them. And yet God rescued us. Okay? So here's a, just a short summary here in Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but... Gary loves the, the but on this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the picture right there. That summarizes everything. We have to have compassion for the lost. This is just one way we can grow in compassion for the lost for unbelievers by remembering our former condition. If we don't do that, we're going to fall into the error of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who look down their noses at those sinners. But if we'll remember our lost condition, remember what we were saved from, he who is forgiven much, what? Loves much, right? Um, in gratitude and sympathy for people, we'll reach out to this lost sinner in humility. Second thing I mentioned last time, um, we have to approach the unbeliever in an attitude of meekness and compassion because we want God's wisdom on display. We want God's wisdom on display in how we speak to them, how we act around them, how we treat them, how we treat God and his truth. We want God's wisdom on display. Turn to James 3, just quickly. And that, I think someone sped up that clock. It's got like a battery that's making it go faster than it actually is. So don't pay any attention to your clocks or cell phones or iPhones or anything. I think it is. Yeah. So, um, James chapter 3, this is one of my favorite passages on how we walk in wisdom. James 3.13 says here, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, or another translation is willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is how we are to act before the unbeliever. Because this is the very wisdom, the very action, the, very, the it says right there in um, verse, well, verse 13, the good conduct we show 
works in the meekness of wisdom. And what does this do but bring glory to God? This, this is wisdom from above when we act this way. So when we speak with unbelievers, we're sharing the good news of salvation with them. It's, it's very good to display the kind of life change that adorns the gospel that we're sharing, that we're not living in contradiction to what we're saying, okay? That's, I, I, it wasn't necessarily hypocritical for her, for Sherry, to drink a glass of wine. But he saw it that way, and he condemned her for it. Now imagine if Sherry comes in there, and she's like, hey, me and Lee just got saved. You guys want a you know, marijuana cigarette? I got a bunch of marijuana here. And then they start to see that. They start to see you breaking out the booze and everything else. They're seeing something that's just like me. That truly is just like them. That in and of itself wasn't an act of hypocrisy. It was an act of something else, maybe, a caving in, but, uh, but not hypocrisy. When we speak with unbelievers, it's really good, really good to display the kind of life change that adorns the gospel. It's not what saves the person, but it does provide a powerful illustration about the transforming power of the gospel. So when we speak with them, we're not going to be jealous or envious for prestige, for erudition, for, for proving them wrong, for having a better argument than they do. We can't, that, that's not wisdom from above. That's earthly, spirit, unspiritual, demonic type of acting, thinking. We're not, we're not out there to gain a certain number of converts and tally up our list of people that are saved underneath our great evangelistic ministry. That is not what we're doing. We are there for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. The glory of God in how we act, in how we speak, in the gospel that we present, we're there for the glory of God whether or not this, whatever happens to this person. Because if God, if this person rejects the gospel, God is glorified in his judgment. If this person embraces the gospel, God is glorified in his redemption, in his grace. Either way, God is glorified with the result. We just need to do what's righteous. We need to act righteously, okay? So it has nothing to do with the result. It has to do with accuracy of the message, conducting ourselves in the fear of the Lord, never in the fear of men, um, certainly not fearing the reaction of the person in front of us. That happens all the time with us, right? So our concern for God's glory is going to govern the manner of our speech and our conduct. And when we display the wisdom from above, verse 17, we speak with purity, a peaceable spirit, with gentleness. Uh, when we honor Christ as Lord, as holy, right? In 1 Peter 3.15, we're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason, for the hope that is within us. We do this, though, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience before God, because that's what we're concerned about. Well, we're going to see a harvest of righteousness that's sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what it says there. Okay? So what's going to help us engage the unbeliever in attitude of meekness and humble boldness, spirit of divine wisdom? And number one, remembering that we were once like them. Being grateful, but being humble, and being compassionate, sorrowfully compassionate for them. Um, but for the grace of God, we were just like him. And remembering also that we represent God. We want to put his wisdom on display. God is the best apologetic for God, isn't he? Third thing, we have to approach the unbeliever with an attitude of meekness because we recognize that salvation, as we've read earlier a couple of times, um, recognize that uh, salvation, conviction of sin, regeneration, the fear of the Lord, repentance and faith, we recognize salvation is the Spirit's work and not ours. 
It's his work, not ours. And knowing that has a, such a calming effect. It takes all the pressure away when you realize that you are out there involved in God's work and it's a work that doesn't depend on you. The success or failure or whatever doesn't depend on you. About a month ago or so, I preached a message on the nature of the apostolic ministry. I don't know if you remember, but we were in 1 Corinthians 2, and we were talking. I'm just looking at the time. I don't think we have time to go through all this, but in 1 Corinthians, nah, just go there. It's scripture, right? It's good stuff. 1 Corinthians 2, and uh, go to verse 12, if you will. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. So we were making the case uh, in that sermon that the apostolic ministry was all about wisdom. It wasn't, uh, it's not a wisdom of the unbelieving world. Um, nothing, nothing the unbeliever is going to recognize or acknowledge or understand as wisdom, but it is wisdom. It's a divine wisdom. And after making that point here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul spoke in verse 12 about the nature of his ministry. This is what he understood his ministry to be, 1 Corinthians 2.12. He says, we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So the we, who's he talking about? He and his apostolic, his apostolic band, the people that are traveling with him. We might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. So the nature of Paul's ministry in verse 13 is to impart or to, another way to translate this is to combine or connect or spiritual truths, interpreting them to spiritual people. He understands that the true recipient of the divine wisdom is those whose, whose eyes have been opened. Those are the people that he's targeting. Those are the people that he's, and, and if God opens, perchance, opens blind eyes, well, that's then his target too. Those are the ones who are going to receive his ministry. So that is to say, it's not for unbelievers, but for believers. Only believers have the internal spiritual mechanism for understanding which is faith. Does that mean we don't talk to unbelievers? Absolutely not. No. He talked to unbelievers all the time. He just knew that it wasn't until they were converted from a natural man now to a spiritual man, that was when the truth is going to take. Okay? That's when the truth is actually going to produce fruit. Natural person, the unbeliever, doesn't accept the spirit, things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them. That, that's not just to say he's unwilling to get them. It says he's not able. There's no ability. There's no mechanism in him because they're spiritually discerned. And what is he? Dead in his trespasses and sins. He's a corpse. He doesn't get that. Those who live according to the flesh, Romans 5, 8, 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot that's the idea. So where does this leave us? Absolutely, utterly dependent on the invisible, mysterious working of the Holy Spirit to save, to convert sinners. And that is to say, we are never, ever, ever, ever proud and arrogant toward the lost. Ever. We're meek, we're humble, we're compassionate, we're kind, 
We're praying, going out in prayer, talking to the person in prayer. We're leaving and we're praying about that conversation. We're praying, praying, praying that God will use us in the work of opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, softening hard hearts. Our hope is in God and God alone, not in the result that we see in front of us, okay? So when we go out to evangelize, we're calling unbelievers out of darkness into light. We realize, as, as Nicodemus told, or as uh, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3 to 8, that the salvation of the sinner is completely up to God. Um, by the mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit is how it happens. And yet, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus, we still command them to repent and believe. We still call them to account for their sin. We proclaim to them the gospel, call them to repent of rebellion, corruption. We call them into light, and we do it apologetically. We do it from a position of light. We don't enter into their darkness and assume their worldview in order to reason them out of it. We stand in the light, and we call them into the light. That's what we, that's what we do. We're compassionate toward them, knowing we were once as lost, knowing we now represent God in this gospel conversation, we're to glorify him, and also knowing our, that salvation is completely of God. There's one more reason with the time we have left that we need to engage the unbeliever evangelistically in a spirit of compassion and meekness, this attitude we're calling humble boldness. Fourthly, we're gentle with the unbeliever because we recognize, and especially as I'm speaking here in this country, I'm seeing Kai over there, he's going to Japan. And he doesn't have the same reality in Japan as we do here. Uh, for many people in Japan, if I understand correctly, it's virgin territory. They don't know the gospel at all. They don't know God, the Bible. I mean, he's introducing them to, he's, this is Acts 17 for him. That's what he, you did your dissertation on that, right? Uh, Acts 10 and Acts 17. Acts 10 and Acts 17. So he's, he's studied the very context biblically that he's going into in Japan to equip himself for that purpose. Us? We're like, we're like heading into Galilee, okay? That's, that's where we're living. We're living with people who, this land here in our country is filled, filled, saturated with false gospels. False understanding of truth, false Christians, false professors, they don't know the truth. I, it's, it's probably no exaggeration to say most churches are filled with unbelievers, Sad to say, our country is saturated with gospel error. There are just so many examples of this. I just want to mention one of them because it struck me recently um, as immediately troubling. Last week, Albert Moeller posted, reposted a blog article that he wrote back in 2010, which addressed the error and the outright heresy that's found in a popular book that's being made into a movie. It's likely that he wouldn't have bothered to mention it except this book. Uh, is being turned into a full-featured film uh, right now. And, and it's not only uh, been tolerated uh, by evangelicals, but even celebrated by some evangelicals. And perhaps some of you have heard the title. It's called The Shack. Um, to the chagrin of every godly shepherd, there are evangelical leaders endor endorsing the book and the movie, both. One journalist, um, Brenda, or uh, Belinda, I should say, Belinda Elliott, and she's writing an article here uh, for CBN.com. And she does a good job setting up the, the, the story of the shack for us. She says here, all the debate about this book, the shack, the movie, it piqued my interest, so I was very excited when I received the book as a Christmas present. I quickly devoured it, keeping an eye out for any heretical teachings. She puts them in scare quotes. 
any heretical teachings, as a novel, I was pleasantly surprised to find the story quickly pulled me in and kept me turning pages. It's quite a heartwarming and satisfying work of fiction. As a work of heresy, however, I was sorely disappointed. I just couldn't find much in the book that I would consider heretical. Keep that in the back of your mind. If you haven't read the book, she says, let me catch you up with a quick synopsis. The book's central character, Mac, receives a mysterious note signed by Papa, inviting him to come to the shack. Papa is the name Mac's wife affectionately uses for God. And the shack is a deserted cabin located deep in the wilderness. The, the location is the site where immense tragedy invaded Mac's life. While on a camping trip, his youngest daughter, Missy, was kidnapped and brutally killed inside the rundown shack. Mac doesn't know if the mysterious note could be from the killer who's taunting him or if it could perhaps be a note from God. He goes to the shack to investigate, and this is where most of the story takes place. It turns out the note is from God, and Mac soon comes face to face with the Trinity. He spends a weekend with these three interesting characters. Isn't that interesting in and of itself? Trinity, trying to make sense of all the painful events of his life and hoping to get some answers for the questions that have haunted him in the years following Missy's death. Definitely sounds like a tearjerker, a page turner, doesn't it? Another reviewer, a guy named Jerry Newcomb, he notes the attitude of acceptance among evangelicals as well. And he cites Stanley Goldenberg, who's a Christian movie reviewer, and he likens the shack, of all things, to the book of Job. Newcomb writes this. He told me, that is Stanley Goldberg, Goldenberg, he told me that watching the two-hour movie is more effective than 20 counseling sessions and will be very helpful to those who are hurting. He also said there are some theological problems in the book and in the movie, but think of it like eating chicken. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. I was thinking it's probably just like eating chicken and in all heresy and whatever variety it tastes exactly like chicken. Just all the same stuff, right? <laughs> and I, and I, I love that comparison too about the 20-hour counseling sessions compared to a two-hour movie doing more good. I'm not sure if that speaks to the true strength of the movie or the, the impotence of the counseling sessions. Probably the latter, right? <laughs> but Newcomb tells about one of his friends whom he calls an evangelical TV producer friend who met the author of The Shack, William Paul Young. And he told Newcomb that, quote, God was using the book mightily to help hurting Christians come back to the Lord. He concluded, let's look at the bigger work that God is doing and give a little more grace. To his credit, Newcomb uh, disagrees with that sentiment in his article. Ultimately, he quotes favorably a critical reviewer who says this, the American church is starving for discernment and choking on heresy. That's a very good quote. Meanwhile, back to Belinda Elliott, who said she couldn't find much in the book that she would consider heretical. Her own article actually condemns her in this. And remember, she's writing an article for the website of a very influential evangelical parachurch organization. Here's what she says. The author portrays the Trinity in a unique way. I understand that some readers will be uncomfortable with this portrayal, especially with God the Father as an African-American woman and the Holy Spirit as a mysterious Asian woman named Sarayu. This depiction is one of the things that many critics have deemed heretical. Some have gone so far as to cite these two characters as, a, as the promotion of goddess worship or a feminist god. But I found these not to be... Uh, I found these to be not only interesting artistic choices, 
but actually enlightening in a spiritual sense as well. Mac, too, is a bit surprised when he first meet them. And in quotes out of the book here, thoughts tumbled over each other as Mac struggled to figure out what to do. Was one of these people God? Since there were three of them, maybe this was a trinity sort of thing. But two women and a man and none of them white? Then again, the, the male figure is the, Jesus is the Jewish carpenter. So none of them white. Um, then again, why had he naturally assumed that God would be white? He knew his mind was rambling, so he focused on the question he most wanted answered. Then Max struggled to ask, to ask, which one of you is God? I am, said all three in unison. Mac looked from one to the next, and even though he couldn't begin to grasp what he was seeing and hearing, he somehow believed them. Belinda um, continues, Belinda Elliott continues, Why should we be concerned whether God is portrayed as male or female when, in fact, Scripture tells us that he is neither? God is spirit and has no gender. Even though the Bible often uses the pronoun he for God and describes him as a father figure, Young offers a detailed explanation of this in the book. The problem is that the author is attempting to describe the indescribable. Scripture tells us that God's thoughts are higher than ours. So I don't expect that humans will ever be able to fully understand heavenly things. How should one depict the Trinity? Where would one even begin to describe a God that is three in one? I certainly don't know where to start, which is why I find Young's uh, depiction of them so fascinating. Observing how these three characters interact gives readers a better understanding of some aspects of God's nature. Now, if, if, that's, that's a very technical term, baloney, that's, but you're, but you're right about that. It's that too. So if, if Mrs. Elliot here couldn't find much in the book that she would consider heretical, she is an illustration of the crisis we're talking about in evangelicalism. And that's the concern of Albert Muller in his article. And I highly recommend that you go online and you read the full article yourself. It's called The Shack, The Missing Art of Evangelical Discernment. Pardon me as I read to you a couple parag few paragraphs here. In The Shack, Mac meets the Divine Trinity as Papa, an African-American woman, Jesus, a Jewish carpenter, and Sarayu, an Asian woman who is revealed to be the Holy Spirit. The book is mainly a series of dialogues between Mac, Papa, Jesus, and Sarayu. Those conversations reveal God to be very different than the God of the Bible. Papa is absolutely non-judgmental. Big surprise there, right? And seems most determined to affirm that all humanity is already redeemed. The theology of the shack is not incidental to the story. Indeed, at most points, the narrative seems mainly to serve as a structure for the dialogues. And the dialogues reveal a theology that is unconventional at best and undoubtedly heretical in certain respects. While the literary device of an unconventional trinity of divine persons is itself sub-biblical and dangerous, the theological explanations are worse. <coughs> Papa tells Mac that though Jesus is fully God, he has never drawn upon his nature as God to do anything. He has only lived out of his relationship with me, living in the very same manner that I desire to be in relationship with every human being. When Jesus healed the blind, he did so only as a dependent, limited human being, trusting in my life and power to be at work within him and through him. Jesus, as a human being, had no power within himself to heal anyone. While there is ample theological confusion to unpack there, suffice it to say that the Christian church has struggled for centuries to come to a faithful understanding of the Trinity in order to avoid just this kind of confusion. 
understanding that the Christian faith itself is at stake. Jesus tells Mac that he is the best way any human can relate to Papa or Sarayu. Not the only way, but merely the best way. In another character, Papa corrects Mac's theology by asserting, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it. Again, the analogy not being the dead in trespasses and sins, but just sick, just hurting. We're hurting people. We need healing. It's a therapeutic view of God. Without a doubt, God's joy is in the atonement accomplished by the Son. Nevertheless, the Bible consistently reveals God to be the holy and righteous judge who will indeed punish sinners. The idea that sin is merely its own punishment fits the Eastern concept of karma, but not the Christian gospel. The most controversial aspects of the Shack's message have revolved around questions of universalism, universal redemption, and ultimate reconciliation. That is to say, all people will be saved. Jesus tells Mac, those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institutions. Jesus adds, I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into brothers and sisters, my beloved. Mac then asks the obvious question, do all roads lead to Christ? Jesus responds, most roads don't lead anywhere. What, does it, what it does mean is that I will travel any road to find you. And that so suits a self-centered American religion, doesn't it? Given the context, I'm sorry to make you sick. I, I really am almost done. Now hold it together. <laughs> Given the context, it's impossible not to draw essentially universalistic or inclusivistic conclusions about Young's meaning. Papa chides Mac that he is, is now reconciled to the whole world. Mac retorts, the whole world? You mean those who believe in you, right? Papa responds, the whole world, Mac. Mm -hmm. Put together, all this implies something very close to the doctrine of reconciliation proposed by Karl Barth. And even as Young's collaborator, Wayne Jacobson, has lamented the self-appointed doctrine police who have charged the book with teaching ultimate reconciliation, he acknowledges that the first editions of the manuscript were unduly influenced by Young's, who is the author, partiality at the time to ultimate reconciliation. The belief that the cross and the resurrection of Christ accomplished then and there a unilateral reconciliation of all sinners and even all creation to God. So James B. DeYoung of Western Theological Seminary, a New Testament scholar who has known William Young for years, documents Young's embrace of a form of Christian universalism. The shack, he concludes, rests on the foundation of universal reconciliation. This is marketed to Christians. This is published by Christian publishers. This is, this is being eaten up. This is being marketed, even the, the movie is marketed to Christians. They're planning on a huge evangelical audience. The shack has essentially taken liberal theology from 60s, 70s, or maybe further back, which all that's existed on the fringe of evangelical scholarship for years, it's, it's brought it into the evangelical mainstream. That's what it's doing. Very confused evangelical culture is swallowing it. So is it any wonder, back to our point, I, I, I did this long illustration because I know that the movie's coming out, and I know that you may be talking to people, family members, friends, and I want you to hear that, okay? But I also want to make the larger point 
that we need to have compassion for unbelievers because how are they to understand Christianity when so much garbage like this is out there? They're completely confused. And when they tell you, look, I just, I, I just a God thing happened to me. You know, I'm saved. I'm one of you. I'm going to church now. And we're, you know, we're so into God and worship. And, and then you start to ask some, some probing questions. They take offense. They can't handle the questioning. Look, we have to have compassion on them, knowing that they're very confused. They, they, they bought, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if any of you saw the Luther movie. It was a really, really good movie, the more recent one that came out. And that, uh, remember that, uh, I can't remember her name, but she's a single mom. She's got that crippled girl. And she comes back and she says, Brother Martin, Brother Martin, she holds up this indulgence she just bought from Tetzel. And went across the border, because, you know, Frederick the Wise wouldn't allow those indulgences to be sold in his land. And she went across the border, which was quite a trek for her. Came back, she'd spent her hard-earned money, not very much of it, she spent on this indulgence, and Luther was just crestfallen to see that she had been duped by this huckster of religion. That's the same feeling we need to have toward these poor people who don't know. They think they, they have bought a, 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 a bill of goods, and they've been told, hey, this is what you have. You got eternal life. You got peace with God. You got happiness in your life. You got everything you want. You're good to go. Your sin's forgiven but they don't know. They've bought a false gospel. And we need to tell them. We need to tell them that that's, that's not true. Lee? I don't disagree with your premise, but when you were reading all this stuff, there was another attitude that came up in my heart, and it's anger. Mm-hmm. It's anger towards uh, this, the poor shepherds who are going to let their people feast on this junk, and it's anger towards the guy who would write that and claim to be a Christian, and it's anger towards Satan because he's behind it all. You know, I, and, and I totally, that resonates with me as well. I, as a shepherd, I, and you're a shepherd, I, we feel a righteous indignation about this in anger that God is misrepresented and people are led astray. Yeah. But I have to stop myself once again and remember the earlier points. God is the author of salvation. He initiates, he saves, he'll, he'll do it. And it doesn't matter if there are a hundred versions of the shack that come out to deceive and just and, and sway people god is going to save his people and there's nothing going to stop that he's sovereign and nothing can thwart his purposes so i have to stop and, and i feel that too i feel that same like oh i just want to burn every shack book i can find but i no or i just what i should do is do like luther did is is uh write a forward to it you know and then and then republish it with my forward in there what you're about to read <laughs> the author william young is saying go on and on so um again just the point being and again i totally i don't disagree with that whatsoever i um just very quickly uh, got a couple don't have a couple minutes it's actually passed sorry about that but um, I, I wanted this to, to make the point, make the case that we need to be meek and compassionate toward unbelievers when we go to bring them to the gospel. We've been talking about some pretty powerful concepts, and I don't want you to ever come away saying, hey, man, we got the truth, and, and walk away and walk into a conversation with, with arrogance or pride or anything like that, but to go to people with compassion and concern. I want to tell you just where we're heading very quickly. Um, 
we're going to spend a couple weeks on clarifying the gospel, the true nature of the gospel, justification by faith. Uh, I want you to understand some of those concepts well, so you understand when, when something's going on in somebody, here's what's actually happening, okay? So we'll go through like the order salutis, the order of salvation, some of those things, and, and try, to, try to get a grasp on that. I want you to understand uh, what the object of the gospel is. God is the gospel, that it's, we're, we're, um, we're about... Recon we want to see people reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So the gospel, I think I said it this morning in some venue, the gospel is the beginning. It's the commencement of this relationship with God that lasts forever. That's what we want to tell people. We don't sell them, hey, here, you want to have a happy life? You want to have good, you know, forgiven sin? And you want to peace and all that kind of stuff? That's all symptoms or fruits of all that. But what the real reward of the gospel is, is God. That's what we want to tell people. They don't want God, then they don't want the gospel. So I want, to, I want to understand that. And then we're going to do some very practical training in sharing the gospel. And I'm actually going to save some of my, um, you know, headier apologetic material that we've kind of dipped our toes into. And I want to unpack that for you. But I want to save that until a little bit later. I got a reason for that. We're going to do some evangelism training. Um, it's going to be some half hour videos. So I'm going to introduce the video, kind of like we did with the Holiness of God series and, and Sproul. But uh, it's, it's some stuff um, that I think will be very practically helpful to you that you're going to love, very, very enjoyable, uh, because I want toward the beginning of the summer to uh, plan some evangelistic outings where we can go and actually put some of this into practice, okay? We're, we're not here just to get our minds stuffed with information, but actually, but actually to do this, okay? And you're like, oh, man, where are we going? <laughs> we're all going to get us a stump, and we're going to carry it around. We're going to throw it down, get up there, and street preach. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. All right? Father, thank you so much for tonight and for what we've covered. We, um, we do pray that you'd impress these truths on our heart and, and cause us, like, uh, like Maggie was pointing out, that we need to continue to remember, remember, remember where we've come from, what you've done for us. Let us never grow tired or take for granted that gospel that saved us and help us to, um, to always reflect on that and to remember that we're no better than anybody else, but you, the, the difference between us and them is your saving concern for us, your mercy and your grace. Let us rejoice in that and let us rejoice to tell others as well. Help us to be bold and at the same time humble, compassionate, and meek with people. We love you. We thank you for being meek and kind with us and for bringing us into the knowledge of our salvation through Jesus Christ for an eternal relationship with you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.